It is good to worship with our church family and with visitors alike, and uh, good to be here with all of you. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. I'll get you the verses here in a little bit, but Ephesians 5. Place your finger there and then turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at both passages as we go along this morning, continuing our sermon series entitled, One Body, Finding Your Place in the Church. Uh, We're closing in on the end of this sermon series and looking forward to uh, our next sermon series, which will be going through uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, We'll be doing that in Sunday school and in our sermon series uh, on Sunday morning worship. And so uh, in the back amongst a whole host of cards and sign-up sheets and information is also the reading plan for Exodus uh, for the next couple months. And so just want to encourage you uh, as you leave this morning to go and grab one of those or find it on our website. Uh, it'll be, it's not up there now, but it will be here in the near future. But uh, encourage you to, to participate with us. We've found that uh, when we go through those readings together, that uh, Sunday school becomes more meaningful, that uh, it better prepares us for Sunday morning worship as we've kind of read some of the context and uh, of where the Lord is leading us in his word. And so just encourage you to participate in that. Um, those readings are, are not designed to be long uh, as a whole. They're designed to kind of uh, get you started. Maybe if you haven't been in a habit of reading that Monday through Friday, you've got somewhere to kind of start. Or if you already have a small uh, a reading plan, that it would kind of come alongside of that. Um, and so just encourage you to grab those, uh, grab those as you leave or, and, and participate along with us as we go through and study the book of Exodus here over the next uh, few months. This morning, though, we continue in this sermon series, as I said, called One Body, Finding Your Place in the Church. And we've looked at several different things of how, how Christ has brought this wonderful thing to, to being, this wonderful thing called the church, and how we as individuals are to be a part of the church. We come this morning to what is easily the hardest sermon in this uh, in this sermon series, and it is on the topic of submission. I have asked the deacons to lock all the doors so you can't leave um, upon hearing that word. Because for most of us, if not all of us, when we hear the word submission or we hear the command to submit, we instantly kind of buck up, right? Like there's a little part of us that just kind of begins to, to get tense and to worry. Um, and yet, what we see in the Word of God is that submission to proper authority, submission to in proper areas of our life, brings about not bad things, but rather blessing. And so, if you would, hopefully by now you found Ephesians chapter 5. If you would stand, we're going to start in Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 15, and then we're going to flip over to John chapter 13. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. 15 says this. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then turning over to John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Then Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, 
The one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than the messen- the ma- his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Father, we thank you for your guidance. We thank you for your lordship. We thank you that you desire to give direction and guidance in our life because you love us, because you desire what's best for us, because you are wise and all-knowing. You see things that we couldn't even possibly begin to comprehend. Father, I pray this morning that as we hear from you, that we would, that we would hear clearly that we would hear carefully, that we would remove the, the lens from our eyes that sometimes causes us to interpret things the way we want to interpret them, the way that is sometimes easier for us to accept, and that we would just look at your word plainly. Father, I pray for myself. Lord, I pray from a place of confession and repentance that I'm not always good at this. Lord, that I struggle. Lord, that I would speak clearly, that your word may do its work. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For the last several weeks, we have been in this sermon series together, looking at our place in the church and, and what the church is. And, uh, and I think most of us have been here, but there's a few of us that are maybe new. So just so that we are all on the same standing and all in the same, coming from the same place, uh, uh, just once again, do a quick review of where we've been the last few weeks. Um, and I'm going to do this really quickly because we, we have done this review in the past, and so I don't want to uh, bury this into the ground, but uh, just want to make sure we're all in kind of the same starting point. First, as we, we've talked through membership and what the church looks like and how we're to be a part of it, we, taught, we started in Ephesians chapter 5, just a little bit after what we read here this morning, talking about how Jesus loves the church. Paul gives a, a clear depiction of how a husband is to love his wife, and that love and that service to her is based on how Christ has loved the church, that Christ has loved the church unconditionally that Christ has loved the church with great sacrifice to the point of laying his life down for her, that she may have life, that Christ has loved the church and, and that he cares for her and that he provides for her, that he loves the church and that he has a purpose and a desire for her. And when we see this and we understand the, the, the bigness of, of his love for the church, then we also understand that loving the church equals, or loving Jesus equals loving the church. That you can't separate these two truths. That you can't separate your love for Jesus Christ from your love from the church. To say, I love Jesus and deny a love for the church is is to be two people. John tells us in his, le- his first letter, he says, if you say that you love God, but that you hate your brother, in other words, you hate the fellow believer, then you are a liar. You can't separate these two things. They go together. And if loving, if loving Jesus means loving the church, then this also means making a commitment. That there is, from the very beginning, an expectation on the believer that they would make a commitment to a local body of believers, that they will find a place to worship, that they will find a place to be encouraged, that they will find a place that, that challenges them and, and helps them to serve the Lord well, but that they will also find a place where they can encourage others and they can challenge others and pray for each other. 
But there's an expectation of that commitment. I was talking with a, a couple this week about joining our church, and we were talking about, and we use, we've used this example here before as well, that in, in some ways, not this isn't a perfect example, but in some ways, joining a church is a little bit like a marriage, that there's a commitment that the church makes to the individual and the individual makes to the church, and that should not be taken lightly, that it's an expectation that you're going to go through ups and downs, but you're going to do it together. They're going to pray for one another. You're going to support one another. They're going to love one another. That's not fleeting, nor is it temporary. So it means making a commitment. And then two weeks ago, we looked at what a member is. Who, who is a member? And we talked about how a member is someone that has been saved, someone that has been brought in by Jesus Christ, that they have acknowledged their sin before God and that they have asked for forgiveness of that sin, that they have believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross and rose on the third day, defeating death and sin on their behalf, paying for their penalty. That is an individual who has made him Lord of their life. It's also someone that has been bonded by the Spirit, someone that, is, that has been filled with the Holy Spirit, a gift from Jesus Christ upon our salvation, that God now lives with us, and that individual is growing closer in their relationship with Jesus Christ while also understanding the importance of growing closer with other believers and being grown and bonded together in the church. And then lastly, that a member is someone who is being built up by the truth. None of us have arrived, none of us are perfect, none of us have reached heaven yet, and so we are still in need of growing in the truth that the Word of God is our foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, and we are being built up, and how the church plays a role in, in encouraging that and feeding and fostering that, as well as the individual in feeding and in fostering and encouraging that in others around them. And then last week, we looked at what a member does. We said that a member seeks unity. That above almost everything, that the member of a church seeks unity in the body, that they are quick to, quick to forgive, quick to find reconciliation, and slow to take offense. That we stand on the word of God and we do not waver in that truth, but that we also give up our preferences. That we sacrifice those preferences at times for the sake of unity. Not only do we seek unity, but we serve one another, and we serve the Lord in whatever way he has gifted us. I was looking uh, this week at uh, the obituary for Julie's aunt, and one of the comments that I made as I was reading through that, and we were, we were talking about that in the office, was this is a woman who didn't wear a bib and let people feed her. This is a woman who put on an apron and served. Oh, that that would be said of our lives as well. That we would go from being baby Christians that get fed with a bib and we would go to being individuals who put on the apron and say, how can I be of service? What can I do? Whether it's my spiritual gift or not, how can I, how can I help? And then we are people, we are as members, we fellowship. We fellowship. That we not just come together on Sunday mornings for worship, though that is an amazing thing. It's an amazing privilege to come to this place and to focus on God and his word and to, to sing songs of testimony and praise and, and at times even songs of grief with one another that as we walk through this life together, but to live life during the week with one another, to encourage one another, to, to walk beside each other in good times and in hard. This is what a member does. This week, though, we turn our attention, as I said in the opening, we turn our attention to a word and to a practice that is difficult for all of us. I know very, very few people who the, who the idea and the practice of submission comes naturally. It's just not part of our nature. It's not part of our culture, even. It's not part of just being a human and yet, what we see throughout Scripture is a plan that God has put in place. Before we go any farther, though, I want, I want to take some time to talk about things that submission is and things that submission is not, okay? Just a, just a few quick things of what submission is and what submission not. First, submission is order. It's order. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5, back to verse 15. It says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verses 15 through 21 in the original Greek are actually one big long sentence. Paul was not a fan of punctuation. Okay? And so it's one big long sentence. And so the command, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, is the guiding principle through the rest of what we see as a paragraph and Paul sees as a sentence. Okay? He, he is starting with that idea. Walk as someone who is wise. And then he begins to tell us different things that point to that wisdom. He says that we are to make the best use of the days. He says that we are to be not foolish, but rather that we are to understand the will of God. He says that we are not to allow ourselves to be overcome by, by drunkenness. Though I think he uses that as an example, right? Like drunkenness, is, it, it controls our body, it controls our mind. But his point here is to be filled with the Spirit. Like, don't allow anything else to control you. You allow the Spirit of God to control you. Walk as one who is wise in that. He says that there is order in, our, in how we greet one another. Wisdom leads us to greet each other in, in many ways. But it has a purpose and a love. He says that we are to submit to one another. This idea of, in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That line is meant to point us back to the idea of living in wisdom, not in foolishness. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to say it's about order. Many people look at 21 and they look at that in the sense of that maybe we are to submit to one another in the body. And while we can go to other texts and maybe build a, a case for that idea and that concept... When you look at the context of chapter 5, I don't think that that's really what Paul's talking about. I don't think he's talking about submitting to, that everyone submits to everyone. Look at what he follows that up with. He says, submit to one another out of reverence, remembering that he's talking about living in wisdom and the plan of God that God has laid out. And then he talks about different aspects of life. He talks about marriage. He talks about family. He talks about employment. And he says, look at these areas of life that many of us, if not most of us experience, those are all areas of submission and authority that we, are to, that we share in. And so when he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, I think he's talking about specific areas. He's not talking about generality of you submit to me and I submit to you and whatever. What he's speaking of is where you are at, you submit as you're supposed to. As to Christ. If you're a wife, submit to your husband as though you are doing so to Christ. If you're a child, which last I checked, all of us are in some way or another, submit to your parent. If you're employed by someone, submit to them as is right, as is to Christ. Now he speaks to authority here as well. We're going to get to that here in a moment. But Paul is saying, living a life of submission is part of the wisdom the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the plan of God. It's order. It is not chaos. God is not a God of chaos. And yet what we find, right, is when we don't follow the wisdom, the, the Spirit, and the plan of God, and we begin to rebel against authority, when we begin to rebel against God's plan, bad things happen. In marriage, when there is a, an imbalance, when we are not following the, the will of God in marriage, that the husband is not loving his wife unconditionally, that the wife is not submitting in, in a way that is, is honoring, then bad things begin to happen. That, there begins to become friction. In fact, God promises us in Genesis, he says there's going to be friction if you're not careful, right? Even, even in the Garden of Eden, he said, he's looking at that, okay? When we see it in children, when children try to usurp their parents and they try to, try to express authority of their parents, which we start doing apparently at the age of three, okay, there become problems. When parents begin to give up authority to their kids and they allow their kids to run the households, and we've seen this, right? When kids are allowed to run the household, chaos ensues. When we see it, we see it in and occupations, okay, that there's businesses that, that the employees begin to, to run things and they're not submitting to a, a boss or to an authority, chaos per, comes. The same could be true of government. Really, any area of our life where God has ordained 
that there be an authority and that there be a submission. When we rebel against that plan, generally the outcome is chaos and not good things. And so submission is about an order. It's not about chaos. And therefore, it's about blessing, not about punishment. In the same way, submission is about authority. In all of these relationships that you see, there is an authority in that relationship. There is someone who is giving some sort of directive, some sort of of leadership and guidance. At the same time, while submission has that element of authority, it does not have an element of abuse. This is probably the most heartbreaking part of of all of this as, as I think through this topic of submission is that God has given this plan for our blessing and then, but like most things in this world that God has given for our good, the enemy has infiltrated it and he has caused others, those in authority at times to greatly abuse what they have been given. What was meant for good and blessing has been turned for horrible tragedy. We see it in government. We see it in marriages. We see it heartbreakingly in the church. We see it heartbreakingly in parent-children relationships where authority and this idea of submission is twisted and turned and corrupted and it leads to abuse. And at the point that it gets there, then we have a different discussion we need to have. But God's plan, God's will for the idea of these relationships, God's plan and will for for structure and order, while they do have an element of authority, they have no place, no place for abuse. In fact, when you look at all of these texts, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Notice, there's like five lines there. Go over to the lines for husbands. It's like double the length, right? It's double the length. Because why? Because he's saying, don't don't abuse your authority. Love like I've loved. Serve like I've served. Sacrifice like I've sacrificed. Where you are taking your wife and you're putting her first. Making her the most that she can be for her good. In the same way, we look at parents, and he says, children, obey your parents, but it's immediately followed up with fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger. We look at the bondservant and the master, the boss and the employee, and it's talking about obedience, but immediately that's followed up with, do the masters, do the same with them, and stop threatening, knowing that he, Jesus, who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Again, yes, there is an element of authority and submission, but there is no room for abuse. As we look at submission, there's order, there's authority, and there is obedience. Part of submission, surely, is also obedience. Whether it be in a marriage, whether it be in children and parents, whether it be bond servants and their masters, employees and their bosses, whether it be a government and their citizens, There is an element of obedience in that. That at the end of the day, though you may not agree with 100% of what is being done, unless it is clearly against the will of God, we trust that the Lord has put them there for a reason. Man, that's hard. That's hard sometimes. We learn as children, there are times that mom and dad tell us to do things and their role as authorities over us, that we as children want to rebel. We think that it's dumb. We think that it's boring. We think that it's useless. We think that there's no purpose behind it. And then often is the case, it's only 25, 30 years later, when we are parents ourselves, that we go, aha, now I get it. Now I understand why mom and dad wanted that. Now I understand why it's necessary. Obedience is hard. But it is part of submission. At the same time, it's not blind. I'm not saying it doesn't require trust. 
I'm not saying that it doesn't require faith. But submission is not blind. John tells us to test all the spirits, right? In his letter, John says, test all the spirits to see whether they be true. We should, we should be reading the word of God. We should know the will. We should be wise so that as we go along in this life, when we hear things, we can begin to have maturity and, and, and be able to decipher what's good and what's not. But there are times, surely, when obedience would mean defying God. And we see throughout Scripture that there are times when individuals defy a family member, when they defy a parent, a spouse. In Scripture, we see times when individuals defy a king, a government, when individuals defy a boss. But those are the exceptions to the rule. But the idea there is that if those authorities are leading us to places outside of the will of God, then yes, there are times for disobedience. But again, there are the exceptions, not the rules. Even in following God, I think it's interesting that while we need to be careful in our questioning of God and make sure we're not approaching it from the heart of a cynic or the heart of a rebellious child, but rather that there are times that we come as a, as a good child, as a faithful child, as a child that wants things, and he allows us to ask questions when we don't understand, when we need help in our faith. I think of the father who brings his child before Jesus, and, and Jesus commands him to have faith, and the father says, help my unbelief. It's an admission, of, and it's a, humili uh, it's a humility thing of, uh, I need help. Mary, as the angel proclaims to her what's going to happen, Mary goes, how can these things be? <laughs> it's a good question. How, how can I have a child without the other part? Like, it's a fair question. How can these things be? But she doesn't ask it out of a heart of a cynic. She doesn't ask it out of a heart of a rebellion. She just asks out of wanting to know and, and to be clear. And she gracefully accepts the response at the same time, there are times that God calls us out into unknown. He calls us to have faith and to trust him. And I think there are times that it's appropriate for us to go, how can this be? As long as we are willing to be graceful and, and willing to trust him in his answer. Submission is order, it's authority, it's obedience. It's not chaos, abuse, and it's not blind. Maybe one of our greatest examples most certainly our greatest example of all of this is Christ himself. Christ, in his time here on earth, perfectly modeled for us both the authority aspect of submission and he modeled for us the, the servanthood part of submission. Turn with me over to John 13, where we were just a second ago, what we read earlier. John 13 Jesus put some of this on display. He has gathered the, the disciples for Passover. This is the night uh, that he would, be, he would be arrested later in the evening or, or early morning, depending on how you look at it. But he would be arrested and tried and soon crucified. He's gathering the disciples together, and he longs to teach them some final things. And before dinner even really gets started, right in, right in the middle of of all of the service and the preparation, he stops. And he, and he washes their feet. Now in doing so, he displays some interesting aspects of authority that we should take to heart. First, he does not give up his authority. He is still has authority over the church, over the, the disciple. You look there at the beginning of our text, it says that uh, his hour had come to depart from the world. Having loved the world, his own, loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then it says, uh, sorry, going down a little bit, it says in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus knows who he is and he knows the authority that's been given to him. In fact, he declares it to the disciples a little bit later in verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
He even gives them a command shortly after this. He goes, you're to do this to one another. Jesus does not lay down his authority as he leads. But he does do some interesting things. One, he does all things in love. It's interesting here. It says uh, that he loved his home who were, the, who were in the world and he loved them to the end. It was interesting. I, I can't remember who I was talking to and I apologize if it was one of you, but uh, someone this, this week struck me with something that was really interesting. <clears throat> Oftentimes we hear in the gospel of John him refer to himself as the, the beloved the one that Je- the disciple that Jesus loved. There's a couple of ways to take that. One, there's a little bit of maybe humility in the sense that G- that John doesn't want his name out there. He's not trying to propagate and puff himself up. The other side of it is maybe maybe there is a little bit of pride. It's like I'm the one he loved, not these other schmucks. Okay. But this individual made a comment that I hadn't really thought about, and that was that John knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was loved. That in his three years. With Jesus, one thing stood out. He loves me. Even when I am silly, even when I do crazy things, even when I speak words that should have been remained in my mouth, he loves me. These 12 men who had lived life with him, there was no denial among any of them how Jesus felt about them. He loved them, and he loved them to the end, unconditionally. Peter, even in this passage that we read earlier, Peter continues to say things that you're like, oh my goodness, my friend, maybe don't talk. But Jesus' response is one of care, it's one of patience, it's one of love. Not only does he show his authority and his love for his disciples, but he shows it in his selflessness. We talked about this several weeks ago that, you know, we see God's selflessness and that Jesus comes and he steps out of all of heaven, the, the perfection of heaven, the peace of heaven, the glory of the presence of God, the the adoration of the angels, Jesus steps out of all of that and puts on flesh knowing that he's going to suffer, knowing that he's going to be tempted, knowing that he's going to just live here in the, the grime and the dirt. And yet he, he gives that up and he, and he lives that life for us that he may willingly lay down his life for us. He, he desires our life over even his own. There's selflessness there. In washing these guys' feet. There's a a selflessness of serving them even when maybe they should be serving him. In perfect authority, there is love, there's selflessness, there's humility. Jesus, God in the flesh, Savior of the world, through whom all things that are have been, was he created He came, he says, to serve, not to be served. He comes in this moment, in in this last hour. Think about this. He he knows that he's getting ready to die. He knows that he's what he's getting ready to face. And yet in this hour, his command is, don't take care of me. His command is, let me take care of you. (laughs) To strip down and to put a towel around himself and to kneel at their feet and to wash the grime off that they may be clean. I don't know about you, but if it was my last day, I don't know that my first thought would be, let me wash your feet. In fact, it may be the opposite. It's like, hey, you come wash my feet. But not Christ. He shows great humility, even in his authority. And then he gives this amazing command. He says, you do the same. These 12 disciples 11 of them, minus Judas, are going to go out into the world and they're going to go make disciples and they're going to be leaders of the new church. They're going to be placed in areas of authority. They're going to, have, they're going to speak truth into other people's lives in, in a way that, that is very evident that it's coming from God. And he says, don't abuse it. Serve one another. Be humble in what you've been given. Love people well. Don't think of yourself first. 
It's an incredible model of what it looks like to be in a place of authority. At the same time, Jesus gives us an amazing picture of what it means to submit. Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter, I think I got this right. Yeah, Matthew, or sorry, Luke. It's in Matthew as well. It's in Matthew towards the end. It's in Luke as well, and that's really where I want you to go. Go to Luke 22. Luke 22. Starting in verse 36. At this point, the, the disciples have had Passover with Jesus. They've had their feet washed. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. And in Luke 22, Jesus takes them outside and they go to the Mount of Olives. And there he begins to pray. You heard a little part of that prayer earlier in our services. But towards the beginning of that prayer, we suppose, is this. Verse 36, it says, He came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, the Son of God, the author of all life, the one who through whom all things were created, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who all things have been given to and all things have been placed under his feet. He is submissive to the Father. We're not sure exactly how this relationship works. We understand the Trinity. We understand that there are three in one, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they come together as one God. We, set, we worship one, and yet we worship three. To try to explain the Trinity and how there can be three in one is an impossible task that we have spent millennia trying to figure out. But when, however that relationship looks, one thing appears true, at least one, and that is the Son is submissive to the Father. Though they share a will, the Son is submissive to the Father. He bends his will towards the one. He does so willingly. It's interesting here. It says, <clears throat> when he says, it's not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is looking ahead and he knows the suffering. He knows what's going to happen. And, and there's part of him that's like, man, this is, this is going to be tough. This is going to be horrible. If there's any other way. He says, but not my will, your will. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. And he does so willingly and he does so with obedience. It's not just words. It's one thing to pray that prayer, not my will, but your will. It's a whole other thing to follow through with it. It's a whole other thing to stand silently before the judges as they accuse you of things that are ludicrous. It's another thing to stand there silently while they pluck out your beard and spit in your face. It's another thing to be led to the cross, to have your hands nailed to that beam and your feet nailed to that structure, to be beaten and to be whipped, and to allow yourself to die for someone else. It wasn't just words that came out of his mouth that night. His actions backed it up. It's easy for us as times to say, Lord, your will be done, not my own. But are we willing to follow it? That's submission. That's submission. In all of this, in the perfect model of Christ and his authority, and his, the model of him who submits to the Father, we follow knowing that it is the wisdom of God, knowing that it is the fulfillment of the Spirit, and knowing that it is His plan. And so how do we submit? How as a church do we submit to one another in reverence to Christ? The church submits to God's plan, His order in various ways. We submit in marriage. We submit in the family. We submit in work, and we submit in government. Paul lists several of them here and others he lists in other places like Romans. Peter refers to government as well. 
We as a church and the individuals who make up the church are to submit to God's plan in these areas because it is his wisdom, not our own. It is his guidance, not our own. We submit in marriage we lo- and we love in marriage. Can you imagine, can you imagine if, if we as individuals as a worldwide church took this seriously took our vows seriously, took these words in Ephesians seriously, and our marriages looked fundamentally different than the world's. Would not the world look at that and say, I want that? I want that? What if, what if they looked at our families and they didn't see perfection? None of our families are perfect. It's the one rule that none of our families are perfect. I have yet to go, I have yet to counsel a family in the stages of grief after the loss of a loved one where they don't say, our family's crazy. Yeah, I know your family's crazy because every family's crazy. But what if they looked at our families and they saw children who were obedient and, and parents who didn't provoke? They saw care and unconditional love and support. What if they saw something different? What kind of testimony would that be? What about in our workplace? What if it were that My phone blew up every day with employers begging me to send Christians their way because that's the employee I want to have because there is something fundamentally different about those people. I want them to work for me. Students, kids, listen up for just a second. What if if your teacher, when they got their roster at the beginning of the year, they saw, your, they saw a Christian kid's name on their roster and went, yes, I have them because they're different. They're obedient. They do their work. They care for others. What if they looked at that and said, yes? What about our government? What if governments around the world said, we want Christians because they're better? Obviously, we know not every government's going to do that. We don't live in a perfect world. But what if? It was like, yeah, they're good citizens. They participate. They serve. We want them. What kind of testimony would that give? Do you see now submission being part of the plan? That in each area of our life that God has placed these different areas of our life and he's put structure in them so that we would would come and we would live wisely, not foolishly, that we would live led by the Spirit and not by our own desires or not by something else that controls us, that we would live in such a way that the world would look at us and say, that's different and I want it. That our actions would bless others and not cause more chaos. The church submits to God's plan in all of these areas. The church also submits to under shepherds. We submit to God's plan for the church. This is hard. <laughs> this next part is hard because it, it feels for me, if I'm completely honest, very self-serving to say, submit to me, <laughs> submit to Nathan. But God has instituted a plan in his church for the care and the good of the church, and that is through under shepherds. What I mean by that is Jesus Christ is our shepherd. We see that picture over and over in Scripture that he's our shepherd. But in his wisdom, while he is in heaven, he has placed certain individuals to be in the church to give guidance, to give structure. And they have an important role. You look at what under shepherds are called to do. They're temporary caretakers, That Hebrews, and we're going to read this in a minute, but that Hebrews 13 says that they will give an account. Someday, Nathan and I will stand before the throne of God and we will give an account for all of you. How we steward and how we cared for your soul. If you don't think that keeps people up at night. We're temporary caretakers that are called to do some things. We're called to feed the sheep. Pastors are called to feed the sheep. To give the word of God well to give guidance well, to give leadership well. Sometimes that's through trough feeding. Welcome to Sunday morning. Okay? We pour it out all the trough. Everybody comes here. Everybody gets fed. But a lot of times, 
It's for us to take and lead into the pasture and you kind of eat where you are, right? Your quiet time, your home, to give you the resources and the ability to do that. That's, that's really what Sunday morning's for. It's to equip you so that you can go out and, and feed on your own most of the week. And then come back here and be refreshed. But we, I, we have a responsibility to do that. We have a responsibility to protect the sheep. To watch out for the wolves that would come in and cause disunity. To cause fellowship to break. To protect the sheep against even our own selfish desires. To stand between the world and the church. Knowing there's going to be times that we're going to get bit. Knowing that there's times that we may get hurt. We're to protect the sheep. Sometimes that means doing and saying difficult things. Just as a parent does. That there are times to protect a child. A parent has to say a difficult thing or a thing that displeases the child. So that they stay safe. There are times that pastors must say difficult things. To protect the sheep. Not only that, we're to feed the sheep, we're to protect the sheep, we're to rescue the sheep. There are times that sheep stray. I'm sure not the cats and sheep. I'm sure they all stay where they're supposed to be. But there are times that sheep stray. And then they can't find their way home. We have a responsibility to go and to find them and to bring them back. To leave the 99 and find the one. Or to rescue the sheep. In all of that, we have great responsibility. And we have, by the grace of God and by his mercy and in his wisdom, some authority. And the church as individuals, we are called, and, and Hebrews 13, 17 says this most directly. But it says, we are called to obey your leaders and submit to them. For they watch over their souls as those who must give an account to this end allow them to lead with joy and not with grief for that would be of no advantage to you brothers and sisters we are called as the church as individuals to submit to the under shepherds as those who have been given authority so that they may care for the sheep again this doesn't mean this doesn't mean that there's blind following certainly you read the word of god you Follow along, you ask questions. Certainly, we, there's no room for abuse. It's not for me to lord over you or Nathan to lord over you. Rather, we, we are in the business of washing feet. But even then, there are times that the Lord says, say this, and we must obey. And in turn, we pray that there is a trust. We pray that there has been love and selflessness and humility enough for the response of the church to be, okay, yeah, we see that. We'll follow. Ultimately, though, while the church submits to God's plan in the world and, God, and the church submits to God's plan to the, in the church with under shepherds, ultimately, the church submits to Christ. Ultimately, he is the head, as Ephesians 5 says, of all things. He is our absolute Lord over all others, over anything, any authority in the world, over any authority of the church. At the end of the day, Christ is our absolute Lord and King. He is the one who has the final say, not just in some decisions, but in all decisions, whether it be with our family or whether it be with our occupation or our free time, our service, our worship, he has the final say. And to not obey is to deny him. To not submit to Christ, to not obey him is to deny him as Lord. And to deny him as Lord is to commit treason and the consequence and to, to accept the consequence that follows. You cannot say that you love Christ. You cannot say that you are his if you will not obey, if you will not submit to him. We have a track that we use with our kids. It's called, Who Will Be King? 
We've used it for VBS. We've used it for some camps. We've used it for charge a few times. But it's a very colorful little booklet. There's a few of them back there. So who will be king? And the simple question that that, that track asks and really that scripture asks is, who is in charge of your life? Is it you? How, how many of our kids stood up here and said, I'm my own boss? And we giggle and we laugh at that. But how many of us in our own life say, I'm my own boss? I'm it. Will you be king? Or will you humble yourself and look at God and say, no, you're king. You're the one who is Lord of all. To do it in this life is to accept his grace and his mercy. To wait is to one day be one of those who sees the coming of Christ and says, oh no. Because scripture says that one day all will bow and all will confess. And there will be some that do that in great joy. And there will be some that do that in great mourning. Who's going to be king? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up this morning. We're just going to have a time of response. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and, and you've been boss your whole life. But you're in a place in life and God has opened your eyes to some things and you realize going this direction hasn't exactly worked. I need him. This morning, will you, will you come to him and say, I'm just tired of doing it my way. I, I want to do it your way. Forgive me for the mistakes I've made. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose on the third day. I want to follow you. And watch what he does. For some of you this morning, you've been a Christian for a long time, but if you're anything like me, there's parts of your life that you're like, I think I'll take that back. I think I'll take that back. Even areas of ministry, I think I can do that better. This morning, will you come to him and say, no, you're king. You're king. Not me. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, and Father, I confess, Lord, that there are times that submission is incredibly hard for me, times that I see things in my own life, and I think, I can do that better. I can do that on my own. I don't need you. Times in my life when, Lord, I need to submit to you, to an authority in my life, Because it is, it is the testimony of who you are. Father, that, that you are good, that you are love, that you are faithful, and that I can trust you. Father, I pray for, for us as a church, Lord, it, it's hard to submit. And we have a world that tells us that it is foolish. Lord, help us to testify differently. Lord, help us to confess where we have not been yours. Father, help us to, to walk in your path and in your plan and in your wisdom and not our own. Father, we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.